Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Telephone Tree Edition. We're recording on Thursday, May 15th, and my name is Sarah O'Donnell. When I'm not playing host to the podcast, I am an editorial writer at the Journal, but I would be so terribly lonely if I was here talking to myself for the next 20 minutes. So happily joining me in the newsroom studio to mull the week in provincial affairs are senior reporter Sheila Pratt. Hello. Columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. And provincial affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hi. As we talked about last week, the legislature has wrapped up until fall, but that did not stop there from being wackiness on the political scene. So we're going to head straight into the weird world of the progressive conservative leadership race and how it managed to even ensnare the wild rose this week. We'll also get a brief update on the status of the NDP leadership race. And then, of course, we'll wrap up with good stuff from the gallery. And I think a few of us have kind of policy-type subjects we might pick through in a little more detail than normal. Let's start with the PC leadership race, because today is actually an important day in the contest. Do you care to share what's happening, Miriam? Sure, absolutely. Um, So today, May 15th, is the... uh opening day for nominations for the progressive conservative leadership race the nomination period will go until may 30th and so candidates who want to declare their intentions to run for the leadership of the progressive conservative party um, can begin picking up their nomination packages going out and collecting signatures and um, paying their non-refundable fifty thousand dollar fee twenty thousand dollars of which is uh, due up front when you pick up the papers the remainder due at the end that is really expensive paperwork absolutely a really a really expensive uh, two-week period for a few of these potential candidates so we've seen already or I guess declared now uh, Jim Prentice went up um, in uh, Calgary along with uh, former infrastructure minister Rick McIver they've both picked up their nomination packages today and are getting ready to collect signatures and recruiting people to their team so they're they're off right and this is the first time we've actually seen Jim Prentice himself kind of say officially you know I'm in the race he put out some tweets yeah picked up my nomination package and who knew these little tweets are so exciting and thanks for your message of support if you're willing to sign my nomination please email blah 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 so to me it already feels like this race has been going on forever I know it's only been two months Ken Hughes has already entered and withdrawn from the race and giving him up his cabinet position to boot in the process. And despite all the buzz about Jim Prentice, I feel like I still don't know a lot about him. So what do we know about him today that we didn't know last week? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we know, we he's, know he picked up his papers officially. <laughs> no, he's no, officially I mean, in. And, and, and we know he's got lots of very powerful and important friends. I mean, what we do know what we do know is campaign communications are being run by Navigator, which is the very controversial agency, which got a lot of interesting single-source contracts from the provincial government to do communications, including for the, the very botched communications for the uh, Child Welfare Roundtable earlier this winter. Uh, we know that Patricia Masutka, who was uh, chief of staff to Mayor Stephen Mandel and a real powerhouse at Edmonton City Hall, is going to be the Edmonton co-chair of Jim Prentice's campaign. I have to say, for me as an Edmontonian, that's the most attractive thing I've heard about Jim Prentice. I have a lot of respect for Patricia Masutka. So if he was able to attract her, that's something good. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that a lot of people in Calgary, including people with very close ties to the uh, the Harper government, uh, are going to be backing Mr. Prentice. But Mr. Prentice himself has not given an interview, at least not to anybody here. I would um, say we also know that many of these ties that Paula's just talked about are ties, are old, longtime old party connections. 
connections. I don't see a lot of new faces in there. And even Patty Masutka, of course, is a, is a sort of newish face, but works with Hal Dangilla, who was the old party connections behind Kara Leibovici's campaign, et cetera. So these are familiar names, and I'm curious to see who he's going to get out that's going to be new and show some kind of renewal in his coming leadership. Even his co-chairs are resorting to Shirley McClellan, truly a veteran of the legislature. Right, former and, deputy premier and yep. a powerhouse minister under Ralph Klein. A long right. time ago. Yes, yeah. quite a while ago. As well, there will be um, the Calgary co-chair, I believe, is... Uh, sorry, no, I think it's the next... He's the next generation co-chair. We uh, have one. Human Services Minister Menmeet Bullard. Right. Yeah. And then uh, Jay Hill, who right. is the Calgary co-chair. Right. So we know we, at least four co-chairs so far. There will be four. Okay. So with all these chairs, I feel like they're going to need some more wings added to their table in the campaign room. That's a <laughs> lot of chairs. But, you know, I've been struck by the negative buzz that's already being associated with when he launched his campaign. I mean, you know, first it was all like, oh, Jim Prentice is going to be the savior of the Progressive Conservative Party. But is it true that there have been people from his camp trying to keep other candidates out of the race? Do we know what's true about that and what isn't? That's certainly been the accusation. I mean, unfortunately, with with something like that, it's it's very hard to pin down without knowing without anyone pointing fingers or naming names um the prentice um spokespeople you know all the people who speak for him uh are are completely denying that they insist that they would love to see a you know a rich competitive race that that would be good for albertans uh although at the moment we're not really seeing that in terms of the pool of candidates um and so yeah i mean we've heard from people like thomas okazic who said that he has been receiving calls from tories uh though he didn't say who and couldn't say whether they were for sure affiliated with the prentice campaign right and i mean on some level you don't know whether, you know, if, if these types of calls were happening, you don't know if they're officially sanctioned. You don't know if it's someone who is, you know, a little bit too zealous in their support for a potential candidate. And, and, and you don't know sort of what the insinuation is. I mean, if someone calls up Thomas Lukasik and says, Thomas, as your friend, I'm going to suggest that, you know, you shouldn't run because then, you know, you'll be deputy premier. So is that someone trying to force him out of the race or is that someone giving him good strategic advice? Only Thomas Lukasik, I think, knows when someone calls him how he hears that. Now, this is the PC leadership race. So I admit I was really surprised to see Daniel Smith get herself entangled in this issue. I would think this would be something she would want to stay as far away from as possible. But Miriam, can you explain a little bit about how Danielle Smith kind of got tangled into the leadership sure. race of the progressive conservatives? Yeah. Um, so I guess what happened was this week she gave an interview to um, uh, Calgary Herald columnist Don Braid. And during the course of that conversation, I guess they were talking about, uh, she says they were talking about um, these sort of purported calls that Rick McIver and Thomas Lukasik had been receiving and said that, you know, on the topic of that, she brought up the fact that she had also been receiving calls and that other members of her party had been receiving calls from, quote, official type sources from the Prentice campaign floating the idea of a PC uh, Wild Rose party merger, um, you know, uniting the right. Uh, and she says that she shot that idea down right away, said no way. Um, but then what was interesting was that, you know, of course, the, the Herald publishes a column about this topic and everyone's interest is, of course, peaked. And so um, they called a teleconference to to address some of this. And, uh, of course, it was the uh, everyone really wanted to get some more details about this. And then the story seemed to to <laughs> uh, differ ever so slightly from the account that we'd heard in the 
braid column um, saying that she had not received a direct personal call from someone in the apprentice camp, but that there was an intermediary from his camp that contacted an intermediary within her inner circle who then floated the idea. And she told this person, no, you can tell them that would never happen. And then the message was sent again down the line. It all seemed quite um, confusing. It seems like a horrible game of telephone tree. You know, the game you play when you're a kid and you sit in a row and then you pass a message down and you start one person whispers one thing. And by the end, the person at the end of the 10 person line says what they think they've heard. And it's completely different. It involved cabbages when in fact it was about rabbits, you know. (laughs) Well, and of course, um, you know, the Prentice campaign, um, one of the co-chairs, Jay Hill, said, you know, no, this is I've talked to everybody, all of the senior campaign um, members. No one has authorized a call like this. No one has made a call like this and and said, you know, the same thing I said earlier, that he couldn't guarantee that a call like that hadn't been made, but that it certainly, he said, never originated from the campaign. The problem is he challenged Danielle Smith to release the name of the person that had the intermediary and she wouldn't. And she said that she didn't really think she needed to. Um, and so, unfortunately, it was just a, you know, a question of he, he said, she said. Well, literally. of course, but it, it's, it's the easiest of denials, right? It wasn't anybody official from the campaign, the campaign that didn't actually exist at the time that this alleged phone call was made. So, you know, the plausible deniability is pretty high. Do I think that there are people in the Prentice camp who are Harper reform, you know, reform party people who would like to say, to the wild rose come back you know come back to the mothership i absolutely i i think that and i think prentice has a really interesting he has to define himself and he hasn't done so yet in the harper caucus he was to the left of everyone else in the harper caucus uh he supported gay rights he's pro-choice on abortion uh he as minister of indian affairs did some very good work in that portfolio towards achieving some kind of uh better situation for Aboriginal Canadians. So is he that Jim Prentice? Or is he the Jim Prentice who was a, you know, a Harper loyalist uh, who has ties to people who were reform candidates? Does he want to take the party left or right? Oh, well, that's pretty clear, I think, Paula. His messengers, when in the weeks leading up to this, were clearly phoning people and saying he's he's definitely a conservative of the right, and that's where he's coming in. And I think he's going to try to be respectable wild rose in many ways and he's going to run that campaign that's going to fight in on the right which one must do in calgary i think probably that's where he sees the major battleground but i think i think what's really interesting is that's a plausible theory the problem is that jim prentice hasn't said one word not one not on twitter not anywhere else about where he stands on any provincial issue you know um there are which is a problem possibly yeah. with his i think campaign. it creates yeah. a, a vacuum that the opposition is more than happy to fill right i mean so there people are talking about this uh, jim prentice campaign is the campaign from the outside that is going to come in and bring renewal but we've got people uh, in the wild rose and other opposition parties talking about the fact that he's surrounding himself with people who are also very close to redford um and instrumental in her own leadership campaign um and so drawing that connection there and and as i say when you don't offer up your perspective positions um people will will fill in the gap for you although we do have many many months ahead for him to tell us <laughs> yes, we do where he stands but, I, but I, I, do, I think it's extraordinary mm-hmm. right he expects his whole party or i don't know what he expects i have no idea what he expects exactly. you've just his, said he says that not said one word so how right. do you know what he expects his team a pair, people who 
people who claim to be his team, apparently expect everyone in their party to loyally line up behind him. I mean, some of those cabinet ministers have never even met the man, but they're all expected to sort of bow down and swear fealty to somebody they don't even know. Uh, but they've been they've been told that's the best strategy. Why in the middle of all this would Danielle Smith insert herself? Because I have to say, I want to go back to this because I think this week was a rare misstep on her part in a way that we have not seen since the provincial election. I mean, why would she get into this? Why would she start even talking about somebody somewhere, somehow approaching them about this? Because to me, it looks like she's caught in this kind of gray shade of untruth. Paul and I were disagreeing about whether it was a misstep, but I think it was a misstep for her this week. Well, you know, you've almost talked me around to this in, in the sense, yes! in the sense that she didn't she didn't come out of this looking great. She came out of it looking a little bit like she hadn't got her story straight. On the other hand, I think she may have a wee problem. I mean, if people are being attracted, the people who've been writing her checks, the people who've been pledging their uh, you know, their support to her, if Prentice's campaign really is wooing them, maybe she has to send a message out there that she's standing firm and she's not, you know, she's she's not playing kissy face. Is there really a need in this province to unite the right? If any, to me, if any part of the political <laughs> spectrum ought to unite in Alberta, it's the left. And it doesn't seem like the NDP or the liberals, frankly, for that matter, most of them are willing to go there. But do we really need to have a unite the right conversation in Alberta? Possibly only in Calgary, where it splits most of the city. And that's probably where her eyes were on. And she figured she could score a little point there, tarnish the new leader just the tiniest a bit but it kind of backfired i think it'll actually be fairly quickly but, forgotten know, i don't think it's i think it'll be forgotten as well yeah. like i don't think it'll be really an issue in a couple of weeks from now even um i you know it, to go back to your question about it being a misstep i just think it was less um polished than they normally are uh, at the wild rose right they usually are very clear with their messaging um and have really um solid control over it and the way that they sort of roll it out and in in this case it seemed to sort of get away from them in a way that they hadn't expected but i think the whole idea i mean i think it's very telling whether it's true or not that there are people in the apprentice camp who are even thinking about wanting to unite the right it has been a wonderful thing for democracy and governance in this province to have an effective opposition that has put the fear of god into this government for the first time in a very long time uh and I am certainly not the president of the Danielle Smith fan club. I am not anything even remotely like a Wild Rose guard-carrying member. But I, I don't want them subsumed into the Tories. I think they're they're uh, carrying out a very important democratic function rather well as an opposition party. And I think it's so weirdly fascistically Albertan to believe that we only have good governance if we all belong to the same party and all pledge to the same dear leader. Although I have to say Prentice's hair is much better than the other guys. <laughs> <laughs> Real well? I don't know. I guess well, we'll, his, we'll his, see. I mean, his hair, is, his hair isn't as good as Luke Hasluck's. It's just better than any any North <laughs> Korean dictators, that's all. Yes. Lukasik's hair. I mean, if we're having a hair competition, Lukasik's hair He wins, wins hands down. Right, yeah, right. His hair's better than Daniel Smith's. So, though, another... It isn't gotten nearly as much attention. It is early days for the NDP. Brian Mason said he would be stepping down as leader uh, much more recently, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. But um, their race seems like it might potentially be even more hotly contested 
as than the progressive conservatives. Can you just how did that progress this week, Miriam? Do do we know much more about the rules or the timing or who's in, who's out, or who's testing the waters? There's a lot of still speculation when it comes to the NDP race. Uh, of course, they're not going to elect their new um, choose their new leader until October 18th and 19th. There will be a convention. Um, they haven't set the rules yet. We don't know when the nomination period could be, though it's likely to be next month. Um, and the party is likely to establish all of the ra- rules of the race by the end of the month. You know, how much the entrance fee will be, um, all of that, you know, campaign donations, all of that sort of thing. Right now, um, of course, obviously there are some sitting MLAs that we, um, whose names are being tossed around still. Rachel Notley obviously is, is um, I think if she, if she throws her hat in the ring, she will be the front runner. Um, but there are a few others. Um, obviously, David Egan uh, is keenly interested, I would uh, suspect. He, he's he's indicated that he's really interested, but he hasn't made a decision. And then there are a few others. There's the Alberta Federation of Labor uh, President Gil McGowan, who has said that he's considering it. As well, there will uh, there is a farmer from northern Alberta, Mandy Melnick, who's indicated that she's interested in running. Um, I think and she's been a candidate for them before, for yep. sure, in the elections. Yep. And then another, um, I think he's a current president of the Non-Academic Staff Union, uh, staff Association at the University of Alberta, Rod Loyola, who has also run for the NDP, um, I think in Alberta as well as federally. And so, uh, yeah, he, he is well saying that he's uh, suggesting that he's interested. So that's five people already. And I mean, when you consider the PC race where there's two and maybe three and who knows who will be left in another month. Um, so, yeah, it is shaping up to be potentially a really interesting race. I think everyone is still waiting to hear from from those sitting MLAs. Um Rachel Notley and David Egan. And I mean, there's also Darren Billis, who uh, he's he's a rookie MLA, so I don't know if he will run, uh, but it would certainly help his. um, Wouldn't he feel left out if he was the only one who wasn't running? (laughs) Well, somebody has to somebody has to, you know, do the constituency work. I want to have us all chime in now on our good stuff from the gallery. Uh, That's where we suggest something interesting to read or watch or listen to that has a political connection. And some of the good stuff that I know we want to talk about also has, you know, we could maybe jump off into a brief policy discussion, um, just so we have a tiny bit of policy with the politics this week. Because that was a lot of talk about party leadership, I know. But it it's a big day, May 15th. So, want to start, Sheila? Oh, yeah. Policy wonk topic number one, birds and tailings ponds. There is a really interesting report out uh, that was done by the U of A biologist who um, got the million dollar um, fine money when um, uh, Syncrude was convicted when the 1600 birds died. And she's produced a report after three three years of study showing that actually birds have been landing by the thousands on those tailings ponds when they weren't supposed to be landing at all. And although a lot of them don't die, some do, but a lot of them don't. So she's suggesting we need to find new ways to keep birds off and new ways to um, where, where they have to improve their the techniques that they're using. There's many interesting things about this, and she's actually written it very clearly for the non-academic. And uh, she also says there's a bit of a leadership vacuum here in this kind of thing, that the government isn't stepping in enough. And after all, if we hadn't had this crude bird incident, we never would have had Colleen biologist doing her study, and we would never know because there seems to be no way for the government to get that information that birds actually have been landing. And will Jim Prentice? a former federal environment minister, have a policy on this? We don't know. (laughs) 
<laughs> you can ask him when he when he comes up here. That should be something we ask him. To me, that report, which I read for an as a, for an editorial I was working on, was a must read report. I mean, it laid out from beginning to end. You know, the incident that happened on uh, in two thousand and eight when the sixteen hundred ducks landed on that sinker's tailings pond, and and she called it the report calls it you know a a focusing event that up until then there really hadn't been a lot of public attention on this issue of birds landing on tailings ponds and frankly probably not as much policy discussion as there should have been overall about tailings ponds right and this really focused attention on that and so now yeah the question is going forward what's going to happen the studies completed companies were doing this monitoring to provide the data for her report a lot of you know they had the observers watching stuff so does government need to do something now do you think or does the energy regulator need what do they need to do to make sure that we can continue monitoring this and find out like what works what doesn't obviously some things aren't working if you've got at least 20,000 sightings of birds landing yes she said annually annually she set it up so that the companies can have a standard monitoring procedure so that they're going to get an accurate count because let's face it they didn't want to count before because they're not supposed to have any birds landing so she's met she set that up the question who's got the authority to make sure that happens this was done for the court not for the environment department syncrude has obligations to adopt some of those recommendations by the court they have to look them over and tell them which ones they're going to do to improve their bird uh, situation but what are the others going to do somebody needs to pick it up and that's the problem with that report there are many pluses you got an in-depth study we found out what the problem was but because it's this one unique thing coming out of a court order it's not connected to the regulator Alberta environment somebody needs to pick it up Okay, well, thanks, Sheila, for that good stuff. Now, Paula, your good stuff from the gallery, is it somewhat related to this? It is very much related to this, although it's a very different medium. I'm going to recommend uh, something by Kate Beaton. She's uh, an award-winning Canadian cartoonist known for her her comic Hark a Vagrant. Uh, She had a best-selling book that came out this Christmas of Hark a Vagrant strips. Now, Hark a Vagrant are usually comic strips that... uh, draw their humor from Beaton's study of history and English literature. So uh, last month she came out with a very, very different uh, set of, it's like a mini graphic novel. It's called Ducks. And it's based on her experiences working for Syncrude in 2008. And uh, they're beautiful, evocative, provocative, um, I don't want to call them comic strips because that, 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 that sounds ridiculous. Graphic. Yeah, yeah, non novels. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it, it's it's graphic. Non-fiction. It's graphic storytelling it's in graphic, a way yeah. that I think you know David Staples has done for us in the yeah. past a little bit. Yeah, using and so it's sort of a, a graphic memoir of her time working for Syncrude, um, and she she talks in part about the ducks, but really, it's about the people, and it's about what it's like to be so isolated, to be so far north, uh, to be cut off from your family. It's some of the most beautiful and thoughtful art I've ever seen to come out of the experience of what it's like to be in a work camp. And I know that in Fort McMurray, uh, there was a, you know, some anger about these strips because they ask some tough questions about what are the human costs, not just the, you know, the, the waterfowl costs yeah. of of running these sorts of businesses. But whatever you think about the oil sands, Kate Beaton, is a really interesting artist, a really interesting writer. And if you are a fan already of Harka Vagrant, Ducks is very different from her other work and it really bears looking at. Okay, thanks. We'll post those links. So 
I want to recommend something that is is actually tied into today's date, although when I originally started to recommend it, I didn't realize the, the date connection. Three years ago, on May 15th, 2011, was when uh, the Slave Lake fire ripped through that town, destroying huge amounts of it, sparking all kinds of questions here in Alberta about our own wildfire policies, how we protect communities, are we doing the right things. Um, Australia has, as we all know, been going through its own massive issues with wildfires. And I just looked at, so this is a bit old, this isn't brand new, people may have already, but it's from The Guardian. And what it's a multimedia project called Firestorm. And it's a, a project that they did telling the story of the family that in the, a January 2013 fire in Tasmania, their picture was beamed around the world when they took photos of a grandmother and her five grandchildren holding on to the jetty as they escaped from this wildfire in Tasmania. And those pictures, I remember seeing those pictures at the time and that they had to run to the water, right? Because the, the fire was burning to their house and luckily they were by water so they were able to go in there. But And it tells a story of, of from that family's perspective of what happened, but then explores the broader issues of, you know, what well, what does Australia need to do with its wildfire policies? And talks about the situation in Tasmania now and, uh, you know, what would happen if something similar happened in a much more populated area because this community had 300 people well what if it happened in near the capital which apparently it could so i've been thinking about the slave lake fire and uh, this was well connected to that and i thought it and also a lovely piece of journalism from the guardian so that's called firestorm Marion, what have you got for us so my uh, good read comes to us by way of Karen Cleese, my colleague down at the legislature. Um, she read a, uh, so I have to confess I have not yet read this piece, but if it's coming um, as a recommendation from Karen Cleese, you can be guaranteed that it's spectacular as she continues to describe it as spectacular. And so I will definitely read it. It's on my list. It's about uh, the CIA consultant, Edward Snowden, who uh, tore the lid off the um, NSA spying um, program and uh, their sort of the ensuing uproar over that um and so it's a special report about the snowden affair and uh it's called um edward snowden and the security industrial complex and so it's in uh the may issue of vanity fair karen recommends it i'm going to read it you should read it and then maybe we can talk about it sounds good and uh it will make us all want to encrypt our data in many many ways i'm sure well Dial up the telephone tree and spread the word. We're done for this week. Thanks to our producer and journal videographer, Ryan Jackson, who compiles a weekly video excerpt of the show, which you can watch every week on edmontonjournal.com. You can see the extra bright and fancy lighting in this week's episode. Uh, that's also on edmontonjournal.com in the opinion section, where you can find previous episodes of the podcast. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash thepressgallery. And we post a show on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just search those keywords, the press gallery. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week.